So with that, let's have another word of prayer. Father God, we just, we just thank you for the Sabbath. We thank you for the time that we have here together. We thank you for the conversations that will be had. We thank you for the way that our mind can stop and think on you. And we pray that we can be sensitive to your presence this morning, that you can speak to our hearts, and that we can walk away with change. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, it's that time of year, that time of year where there are three simple words that seem to change the very season that we're in. Those three words, back to school. Yes, we know those words well, don't we? Back to school. We've been hearing them for a while because the retailers are trying to make some sales around the event. But back to school, when we hear those words, it means different things to different people. I imagine there's a wide range of emotions that are to be had when people hear the words back to school. As I talk to different students who are going back to school, I, ex I, I, I get from them a different set of emotions. There are some who are very excited to go back to school. They're excited to be back under the instruction of their teachers, they're excited for learning, but mostly it seems they're excited for socializing with their friends. When you talk to them about their summer, some of them it sounds like they've been on a social island, excommunicated from their peers, and they're finally going back to where they can be with their friends, and they're excited for back to school. There are others who feel like back to school is an interruption as if they're in the middle of something important and something good called summer vacation, and you hear the words back to school, and it feels a bit like, a, like a, it's interrupting something good. Like, why would you mess with my summer vacation? There's a range of emotions. And it's the same to be said with parents, right? Have you ever been at a school on the first day of school? As you watch parents come in on their first day of school, you see a wide range of emotions. There are some parents who are not excited about the first day of school. There are some parents, I may have almost been one of them this week, who were crying a little bit because it's kind of an emotional time, you're giving up your child, they're gonna be under someone else's instruction for most of the week, and it's kind of a hard thing to give up your kid. But then there's other parents. You know the other parents. It, like, you're one of them, Peter. There are other parents, it's like Christmas morning, the first day of school. They can hardly contain themselves, they are so excited. Um, I've had a wide range of emotions to those words over the years, but I used to be really excited for this time of year for a not very nice reason. You see, I, I, when I first started as a pastor, I had several colleagues that were about my age. Um, several colleagues who we went through seminary together, we started our internship together, we just kind of were moving through life together. And a couple of them, at the same time, decided to make a career transition, and they made their way out of pastoring, directly the, the, that, that kind of ministry, off to, to education. They decided to pursue a life as teachers. And they went through with that, and they went all the way, and they became teachers in the same conference that I worked as a, as a pastor. But even though they became teachers, they kept several key events on their calendars. Events that I would be required to go to. Events that I wouldn't necessarily want to go to and that they knew they no longer were required to go to. And so they would keep these events on their calendars. And when they would come, I would always get these messages as if they didn't know what I was doing. Oh, what are you doing today, David? I'm just sitting on my back deck reading a good book. How about you? And so we started to get this bitterness, right? Because they'd be on summer vacation and I'd be having to go to these conference meetings that I didn't want to go to. But then I would hear the words back to school. And I thought, yes, this is my turn 
to turn the tables and communicate back to them. Now, I used to do this. I say I used to do this not because I had a change of heart, not because I suddenly became a nicer person, but because it lost its fun. Because as I started to give them a hard time about the fact that they were going back to school themselves, I started to realize that they were actually excited to go back to school. I started to realize that they were already, throughout the summer, meticulously thinking about their, their plans, their lesson plans, and how they could tweak them, how they could modify them to make them better, to make them more effective. And by the time the school year was coming, they were ready to go. They were envisioning the students who would be coming into their classroom. They'd be thinking about how lives could potentially be transformed, and they were psyched to teach again. You see, it takes a special breed of a person to become a teacher, doesn't it? It takes a, a special breed of person who wants to stand up in front of a classroom day after day after day. I know a little bit about standing in front of people, and I can't imagine doing it every day. It sounds absolutely exhausting. It takes a special kind of person who's willing to pour so much out of themselves in an effort to improve someone else in an effort to help someone else in their walk in life to become more successful, to pour all of that energy out of themselves. And it takes a special kind of person to deal with, to weather through the complaints and the concerns of parents. Isn't that right, teachers? The complaints and concerns of parents. It takes a special person to do that. You see, we recognize that teachers are important people in our lives. And that's why today, as a church community, we want to spend a little bit of time thinking about our teachers. We want to spend a little bit of time thinking about the influence that they have on the lives around us. And I want to be clear here, as we're talking about teachers, we're talking about a wide range of people, aren't we? We're talking about people who are teaching at the very youngest level. They're teaching things about colors and numbers and how to read, the fundamentals of how to read. Everything from that all the way up onto the upper side where you have teaching at the collegiate level and they're teaching students how to think. They're teaching students how to see the world around them. Then we have teachers who are teaching from their home, who've made that sacrifice to instruct their very own kids. And we have teachers who are teaching in our very own schools, like Vista Ridge Academy. And then we have teachers who are teaching on the public campus. But all of these teachers make such a significant impact on the world around them. Regardless of whether or not they explicitly talk about Jesus in the classroom, the way that they live their lives communicates something important to the kids, to the students that they are around. And because of that, we want to recognize what they do. We want to appreciate what they do, but we also want to have a prayer of dedication for them before we close the service. So teachers, be warned, you will eventually have to join me up here. But we recognize that they have this significant amount of influence. If you're a parent, you know this clearly. I remember there was once a day when I, when I had young children. I still have young children, but my children were even younger. And I was, me and Val combined, we were, we were like the ultimate authority figure on everything. We just seemingly knew everything. And if we gave them an answer, that was good enough. I knew that day would eventually change. I didn't realize that day would end the second they were in school, within the first month, and I tried to give an explanation on something which apparently differed from the teacher. But teacher says, and it happens so early, teachers have such a significant impact on their students and on our world. 
So I want to spend a little bit of time thinking about that. And we want to look at a text that, that communicates something both to our teachers but to the rest of us as well. Now, if you jump on Google and you're looking for a text about teachers, the first text you come to is actually James chapter 3, verse 1. Now, if you know James chapter 3, verse 1, what it says is not many of you should become teachers, which doesn't really seem very appropriate since you've already made that decision, those of you who are teachers. So it's a little bit late for that. But my favorite part is the reason why you shouldn't become teachers is because you are judged more strictly than anyone else. Teachers, is this true? Is there some truth to this that you're judged stricter, your students with their responses at the end of the year? So I started looking for a different text. I started looking for something else that would speak to the, the life of a teacher as well as to our lives and how we live our lives. And I came to Matthew chapter 18. Now I need to warn you as we open this, Matthew chapter 18, that's a bit of a foreboding passage. It doesn't sound very chipper or cheerful at first. And it also doesn't sound necessarily super related to being a teacher. But I think as we go through it a little bit closer look at it, I think as we go through this, we'll see that it has a lot of meaning that's tied to what it means to be a teacher, as well as to the rest of us and how we live our lives. So Matthew chapter 18, starting with verse one. Matthew chapter 18, starting with verse one. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. But whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives such a child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a giant millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. You know, sometimes Jesus doesn't seem to be overly concerned with polishing the words that he puts out. These are the kind of words that if I were to get up here and say them on my own, I would probably lose my job within the first day. It doesn't seem like Jesus took this as he was thinking about his teaching here in this moment. It doesn't seem like he ran it through risk management, did he? Because there's a bit of a liability involved here if you're telling people to straight up tie a millstone around their neck and essentially drown in the sea. What if someone actually listens to Jesus? What if someone actually takes him at his word and takes him seriously? Jesus, this doesn't seem like the best teaching that you've had. You haven't polished this one over yet. Neither does it seem like Jesus ran this through his PR teams. If Jesus is looking for more followers, this probably isn't the way to do it. Neither is this the best way for him to add more donors to his operation, right? This doesn't really seem like the smartest move ever. And in the context of teachers, I need to apologize already because this doesn't really seem like a good message to teachers. As if you didn't have enough to worry about with the criticisms of parents, now you have to worry about what Jesus has to say if you somehow mess up at your job. It doesn't sound very good, does it? But here is one thing that we can pick up right away. There's one thing that we can know for certainty. If there's no other message that we can get from this. The one thing that comes out super clear from the very beginning is that Jesus places a high value on young lives. When Jesus looks at the young children in the world around him, he places a high value on those children. And, and something that we need to think about as well 
when we're looking at the society that Jesus is speaking to, they were placing less value on children than we do in our current society because the children didn't really have anything to contribute to society. The children were not productive members of society yet. And so they were not yet quite ready to be seen as something of great value, which perhaps also speaks to us as we think about people that, maybe not, that may not be children, the way that we value people differently. Do we value people based on their productiveness? Do we value people based on what they can contribute to the world around us? Or do we value people because they are children of God? When Jesus looks at this at the children around him, he places high value on them already, even though they're not yet contributors to the society around them. That's something that we can take as a church to heart. As we think about us as a church and how we relate to young people, do we place a high value on young people? I was going through the, the book, You Lost Me, a couple years ago. And many of you have probably read this before, but this is from the Barnard Research Group, where looking at this book, looking at their research across the board, whether they're looking at Protestants or Catholics, and then later they did a study on Seventh-day Adventists themselves and found that all of them were losing the majority of their kids. That once kids grew up and graduated from high school, they graduated from the church as well. Somewhere around 60% of them made that choice. As David Kinnaman, the one who authored the book, You Lost Me, is reporting on this, he asked this pertinent question. Do you as a church love your traditions more than your children? Do you love your traditions more than your children? In other words, when you see that type of loss that's taking place, are you willing to sacrifice? Are you willing to make changes? Are you willing to do something significant for the sake of the very people that Jesus himself said that he values highly? I believe at Boulder, we've already answered that question. I believe that's one of the things that attracted me to this church when I was interviewing and looking at this church, that this is a church that says we will do what it takes to keep people connected to Jesus. We will do what it takes to make this a relevant place of worship for all ages. But let's go on. Actually, before we go on, I should also mention one of the solutions, if you ever read this book, one of the solutions about what it is that helps keep a child attached to the life of faith is meaningful relationships with adults. Meaningful relationships with adults. When you think about your life and you look back on your childhood and you think, who were the adults that I had meaningful relationships with that improved my walk with Jesus or improved my walk in life, who are those people? I guarantee you for most of us, we think of teachers. Most of us have teachers that come to mind as some of the most significant influencers of our lives, which is why we focus on them so much and we say they're of such high value. But the rest of you are not off of the hook. When we're talking about how do we raise our children in a way that meaningful faith is transferred, that they adopt it as their own when they go into their adult life, we see that the meaningful relationships not only takes place through pastors and teachers, but especially through other people as well. Because one thing that came out in the research as millennials are growing up, something that they recognize, and this kind of hurt as someone, as I was reading this, I was a youth pastor, I'm reading this, and I said, as they look at like a youth pastor, for example, they look at a youth pastor with skepticism because it's easy to say, well, this guy is paid to care about me. This guy, this is his job, is to look after me. So he doesn't necessarily really care for me. This is just what he's supposed to do. 
And perhaps the same thing at some times, some point could be said about teachers. So it's important that all of us find a way to connect with people, that all of us take the time and the effort to disciple people and to walk through life with people. But let's go on. Let's look at this passage some more. First of all, is we need to, we need to start with the context, starting with Matthew 18, verse 1, because it all starts off with what seems like an unrelated question. It says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It's something as you look through the gospels, you see them come to this time and time again. They want to know, how can I best elevate my position in the kingdom? They're looking at the kingdom as a political kingdom, and they want to know where they sit. As you look at Matthew um, 18, you can kind of see some of the context of what brought them to this moment. There's a series of things that took place prior to the last two chapters. Uh, first of all, there, there's a moment where Peter actually opens his mouth and he gets it right. It's amazing because Peter always opens his mouth, but he seldom gets things right. But he opens his mouth and he gets it right because he declares that Jesus is the Messiah. And it's like score one for Peter. He's leading the pack with correct answers. Teacher's pet, ding, ding, ding. But then, of course, he gets rebuked by Jesus and he says, basically called a devil. But that's another story. But then after that, even after that little, little tiny slip up, he then is invited with James and John up to the Mount of Transfiguration. They see this, this incredible moment where they see Jesus in his glory. They see Jesus as like a divine being. And you can't help but wonder if the other disciples are kind of left out of this moment, if they're starting to say like, wait a second, I see how this is. These three always seem to be closer to Jesus. Perhaps these are the ones that are going to be best in the kingdom of heaven. But wait a second, I've put a lot of time, I've put a lot of effort in, I should be elevated up to a higher position. position. So perhaps their concerns are starting to surface at this moment. And then right before we get to this passage right here, Peter kind of has this cool moment where he finds a coin in a fish's mouth. It's a miraculous moment that he's the chosen one to participate in. And so maybe it's Peter. Maybe Peter is coming up to Matthew chapter 18. Maybe he's the one thinking, wait, maybe I'm the chosen one. Maybe I'm going to sit at the side of the Messiah when the kingdom comes. Or maybe it's the others who are feeling a little bit jealous and feeling like Peter is getting some preferential treatment and they want to be elevated. Whatever it is, some kind of conversation happens. And some kind of conversation happens at some level that Jesus notices it. And uh, in this version, in Matthew 18, they directly ask Jesus about it. I kind of like the version in Matthew, or in Mark that takes place. When Mark tells the story, I think it's in chapter nine, when Mark tells the story, the disciples are talking amongst themselves about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus comes in and he kind of knows what they're talking about, but he asks them anyway, what's going on? What are you talking about? And none of them answer. It just goes quiet. Now, teachers who are here, what does this mean to you? If you walk into a classroom and there's a bunch of activity happening, there's a bunch of conversation happening, and they go quiet, that tells you one thing. But then if you ask them, well, what were you just talking about and nobody wants to answer, that tells you quite a bit more, doesn't it? It tells you that they know that they were in the wrong. It tells you that they know that what they were doing wasn't super appropriate, but they were doing it anyway. And here in this moment, the disciples are finding themselves consumed by the world, consumed about trying to climb this ladder, consumed about trying to be more important than people around them, consumed with something very different from a servant 
part. Of course, we don't really struggle with this ourselves, luckily, right? Because we, as a society, we've moved on past this kind of one-upmanship where we're trying to be better, trying to advance our career ahead of someone else, trying to have a bit more prestige than someone else. We don't struggle with the same kind of thing where we compete with each other, do we? You just see the Olympics just now. We have these, these moments where people are celebrated, and as they come across the finish line, what do you see the first thing that comes up? Number one. Here I am, number one. In case you missed it on the slow motion recapture here, I am number one. I am first place above everyone else. And if I really mean it, if I really mean it, I'll ask you for some more adulation because I want to make sure we recognize who's on top. It's something that consumes all of us to some level. I was, uh, I was on a Pathfinder trip at my last church this spring. Now, every year, they have what's called a, a winter trip where they take the club to the summer camp, which is Big Lake Youth Camp. And, and in the winter, Big Lake is kind of this neat place that's just full of snow, and you can't actually even drive into the place. It's so full of snow, you can't drive in. They have to take a snow cat out, and they pick you up in the parking lot, and they have all these inner tubes in the back, and they pile all the kids up on these inner tubes, and they drag you in. We have 50 kids coming in. They drag 50 kids in on the inner tubes, and it becomes this giant snowball fight from the first moment you get there. Because you're on the inner tubes, and you just scoop up the snow and start tossing it at people. And that starts it for the entire weekend. It becomes this giant snowball fight, and it never really ends. People take sides, teams, kind of a war almost. Well, I get there, and of course, I get involved in the snowball fight as things are happening. But it gets more serious when we actually get to the camp. There's so much snow that the big buildings, the, there's no real de definition between the roof and the ground. It just, snow just kind of piles up and elevates. So you can climb up on top of all these tall rooftops, the tallest of which being the cafeteria. And the cafeteria is this fantastic place because it, it turns into a giant snow slide on one side where you can slide out into the lake. But then on the other side, it becomes quickly a king of the hill place. And people run up to the top of the hill and they defend the hill. It just becomes this natural thing. No one instructs anyone to do it, it just happens. Well, I get there and I see a couple of kids who've been king on the hill for a little too long. And I think to myself, this is my moment to shine. This is my moment to teach them who's the real pastor around here. And so I climb up to the top of this mountain. There's snowballs falling, you know, being thrown at me, things plastered in my face. But then comes a victorious moment. When you get to the top of this hill, it's just you and a couple of 10-year-olds, and you realize the size advantage that you have that you never had when you were a kid. And it's like these, uh, these inner things start developing as they grab one kid and throw him down the hill. And it feels good. Like, it feels really good. I can't lie. Because then another kid comes up, and he tries to sneak up behind you. You throw him down the hill. And I find myself up there for a solid hour maybe more, and I was really, really enjoying it. It got to a point where there was one moment where I almost hurt a kid. I threw him a little bit too hard. There was a head kind of banging on the snow, and I gave myself a timeout. I said, this has been enough. Because there was something, something that just kind of comes inside, even with the kids as I'm there. At first it starts off with play, then I start to realize it's not play anymore. I'm really enjoying being on top of this hill. I'm king of the hill now because there's something inside of us that we want to be the one that's powerful. 
We want to be the one that's on top. We want to be the one who's in control. But Jesus says, there is another way. There's another way that I have in mind. And the other way is so opposite to what we want to do. That's to be like kids. He says this, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean? What does it mean to actually be like a child? We've heard this phrase so many times before, but do we ever stop to think about whether we're actually living like a child? And how opposite this is from our natural tendency to cling for control, to cling for power, because children have something that, that they just have to have because of their age. They have to have trust. They have to depend on somebody else. And they have to be humble. So when Jesus tells us that we have to be like children in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, he's telling us that there are things that they have that we can learn from them. It seems backwards because we look at children and we think we're the ones who instruct them. But he says, no, in fact, there's something you should learn from them. It's trust, it's dependency, it's humbleness. And these are things that don't come super easy to us. But you see it come so easily with children, especially when they're super, super young. I remember the first time that it really just hit me, like how much my kids actually trusted me, was when we would take them swimming before they knew how to swim. For you parents, remember doing this, you take them swimming before they know how to swim, you put them in the water and they sink like a rock. Like you think there would be something natural, they can kind of figure it out and get their head above water, but no, they are just seconds away from drowning at any moment that they're in the pool. But somehow they learn quickly that if they cling to you, they're okay. If they cling to you, they can get up and get some air and it's just fine. And so you swim with them for a while, you're playing with them, you're holding them in the water, but then you put them on the side of the water. And what do they wanna do? They wanna jump in the water because it's a lot of fun. They jump in the water fully knowing that you're going to be there to pick them up out of the water. And you put them on the side of the pool, they jump in the water again, they jump in the water again. Now, if I was a kid, if I was a three-year-old that had a, a mind like mine thinks right now, if I was standing on the side of the pool and I knew that I couldn't swim, and I knew that if I jumped in and my parents didn't rescue me, I would sink to the bottom and that would be the end of my life, what I would then do is talk to my parents. I would communicate with my parents. I'm about to jump in the water. Are you ready for me? One, two, three, now. That's how I would do it. Maybe, and I might not even do it then because I might not actually trust that they will do it. They might be mad at me that day or something. But that's not how kids operate. When you're swimming with a bunch of kids, even if they can't swim, they jump in the water fully expecting you to get them out of the water, even without communicating with you. Even when your back, this is the frightening part, even when your back's turned to them, you hear the splash, wait, I thought that was a kid, what? You turn around, sure enough, there's a kid sinking underwater, but they know that you're going to get them because they depend on you. And not only do they depend on you, they want to depend on you. Imagine if you were to be driving down in downtown Denver with your four-year-old, if you have some, someone that young in your house, and you're walking maybe to, to a restaurant and you get out of the car and your four-year-old's like, you know, I'm good, thanks for the ride, thanks for bringing me here, but I think I got this at this point. I'll see you later, maybe you can pick me up later tonight, how's that sound? Like your four-year-old would never do that. Your four-year-old doesn't want you to leave because they depend on you and they like that they depend on you, they like that you're there for them and they don't want you to depart away from them. Do we have that kind of relationship 
with our God? Do we have that kind of relationship where we know where our strength comes from? Do we have that kind of relationship where, where we know that he has our backs all the time? Or do we have the kind of relationship that when things start going right, when we feel like we have some kind of success in our lives, we start taking back more control because we actually really want to be in control rather than to be the ones that are dependent on somebody else. But of course, Jesus makes a, tr a twist here. Because he doesn't just stop with this idea that, that we should become like children. But then he flips it to this totally different idea that if you're somehow going to mess up a child's life, if you're somehow going to cause a little one to stumble, then it'd be better for you to tie a millstone around your neck. And make no mistake about it, when Jesus says this, he's talking about something deadly. In fact, it, the scholars say it's very clear which millstone he's talking about. Apparently, there's two different words for millstone. And there was the one kind of millstone that like a, a little lady could churn. That was kind of like the personal private home millstone. But then there's the millstone that only an animal can churn. They would use like a donkey or an ox to churn. And this is the kind of millstone he's talking about. When it's tied to your neck and you jump in the water, there's no chance of being able to swim to the surface with this thing. Jesus means business when he says this. I think what we're talking about here is more than just about kids at this point. Obviously, it's about kids because we're seeing a high value that's placed upon kids. But more than that, we're talking about influence. This is the, pr the problem here. The problem is, isn't that a child's life is less valuable than your life, but that you have so much influence on, children's on the ch child's life around you. You have so much influence on how they perceive the world, so much influence on how they perceive God, so much influence that he says you have to take it seriously. And it's not really just about children, is it? Because we have influence on so many people around us. It's not just the kids. And at first this seems like it's a little bit out of context from the original conversation. But then when you start thinking about it, What's the opposite to living for yourself? The opposite of living for yourself to striving to being the greatest is when you're living for other people around you. The opposite is when you recognize that it's worth sacrifices in your life. It's worth going out of your way to elevate the experience of the people around you. As I was reading this text, I couldn't help but think of Paul. Paul who talks about being all things to all people. Paul who talks about not being a stumbling block. Paul, who is so concerned about the way that he lives his life that he chooses to live differently, even from things that he could do for the sake of other people. It's the kind of kingdom living that Jesus was calling his disciples to live. It's the kind of kingdom living that Jesus is calling us to live, where we take life seriously, and we take the experience of the people around us seriously, and we think seriously not only about our young people, but we think about the other people that might be affected by the way we live as well. But Jesus doesn't stop here. Just when you think Jesus couldn't be graphic enough, he continues. And he continues with this, verse 7. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. See, again, we're talking about more than just kids here. We're talking about our impact on the lives of people around us. Verse 8. And if your hand or if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye 
then with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Like I said, the text is a bit foreboding. As Jesus talks about these things, it starts to sound a bit graphic. And it also sounds a bit out of place. He was just talking about who's the greatest in the kingdom, and they went from that to how we should be like kids, and from like how we should be like kids, how you better not mess up the life of a kid, to now cut off my arm, cut out my eye. Doesn't really make much sense. It's interesting the context when you look at, at Matthew. Matthew has already quoted Peter, or already quoted Jesus as saying this. He already said it back on the Sermon on the Mount. He already talked about plucking out your eye if it causes you to sin. So why does he come back to requote Jesus here? In this moment, I think it still goes back to the responsibility that we carry for the lives around us. Because you see, when the, the choices that I make, the way that I choose to live my life impacts me. It impacts my relationship with Jesus. But more than that, it impacts people who see me live my life. Your ability to control the temptations around you, your ability to stand and make a strong stand impacts the lives of the people that are influenced by you. As I think about the teachers that we have here today, your life choices matter. It's not just simply about what takes place in the classroom. It's not just what takes place in your lesson planning, but it's the way you live your life. It has significant importance. As I think about parents who are sitting here who have kids, it's not just simply about what you say to your kids. In fact, that's probably the least important thing. What most matters is the way that you live your life that your kids see. That's what matters. When we sit here in the church, we can talk about God, we can talk about how to live life, but it doesn't really matter so much what we talk about here, what, are we, what conversations happen in the Bible studies afterwards. What really matters is the way that we live our lives. And it's not just simply about living my life so I can get a check clearance by God, because Jesus tells us so clearly that we're saved by grace. He's saved us. But what matters is the way we live our lives impacts the way people see our lives lived, and it impacts the way they live their lives, and it impacts the way they see their Father. The things we do matter. The things we do are important. It's impossible for me to read this without thinking back to the old story of Aaron Ralston. Remember Aaron Ralston? I think this was back in 2003 that he surfaced on the news. Aaron Ralston was an outdoorsman and he was doing some, some solo, not climbs, but some solo exploration by himself in Utah. When as he's going down through a canyon, dislodges somehow a 500 pound rock and it crushes him in the canyon walls. His hand's stuck there and he has no way out. Do you remember this story? It was so popular when it happened. Um, as, he, as this happens, he's left in there for days. Night after night goes by as he clearly realizes he has no clear way out. He realizes he's left no note with anybody. Nobody knows where Aaron Ralston is. He has no hope that search and rescue are going to be able to find him. And so he's stuck there trying to figure out what to do. And it's not till I think it was day five that he finally figures out a way to free himself. He contemplated cutting off his arm earlier, or cutting off his hand earlier. But it wasn't until this day that he finally realizes how to do it. And he finally realizes he can do it by breaking the bones in his forearm. He hadn't figured out before that how he could cut through, but he realized he could leverage his body in a way that he could snap both bones and then be free 
to cut through. So I'm going to read a piece. As he, it, it goes into graphic detail as he cuts through the different layers. But it gets to this as he gets to the hardest part, which is his main nerve. He says, when I hit the main nerve, which is big like a piece of extra thick spaghetti, I had to snap it like I was plucking a guitar string with an upturned knife. And when I did it, when I did that, I felt like I just vaporized my arm up to my shoulder. I took a real sharp intake of breath, closed my eyes, and just felt the most intense fire burning through my arm. And just like that, he was free. He says, when I was trapped there suffering all these tremendous deprivations, I realized that I really wanted to live. I had an opportunity to kill myself just to put myself out of misery, but I chose life. I love that last line, but I just chose life. Are we willing to choose life? Are we willing to choose in a way to live with such tenacity and focus that we're willing to think about not only our own lives, but the way we impact the lives of the people around us? Are we willing to make the sacrifices that are necessary? Are we willing to cut the things out of our lives that are hindering us from living that kind of life, do we choose life? 